I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Even though I'm still not on the radio this week, uh, obviously we are uh, Facebook live streaming, and this show will go up as a podcast immediately after after I record it. Um, I thank you for joining me. And look, and I encourage you to keep joining me on Facebook Live and uh, as a podcast. And, you know, as much as I do try to suggest that you listeners, even if you're listening not on the radio, that you support the radio stations, you know, more than, more than sending money in. And I think those of you who listen to this program are probably donating plenty. But what we really need is more listenership, at least for a radio audience. Look, I, I don't care if, I, if, if there's only four or 500 people listening on Facebook or another four or 500 listening as a podcast. To me, the audience may be targeted. But in order to be successful on the radio, we need more than that, especially when we're broadcasting in markets the size of New York City and Washington, D.C. So I ask that you, you spread the word. Let them know you heard something. You know, I, I did a show that got me in trouble a few weeks ago, and I heard some people say that, man, that was one of the best radio shows I've ever heard. Now, I don't know if they meant it was one of the, my best radio shows uh, because of my guest. Uh, I had a friend of mine, Doc Shaw, on with me. I don't know if that, if the compliment was because it was one of my best shows or just they hadn't really listened to the program much. So all I can say is spread the word. I'm talking about things you have probably never heard of before. And look, I know that I can be guilty of sometimes you know, plowing the same dirt a few times over. And part of that is because I know I have new listeners each week. Uh, and, and some of the stuff I have to do updates on. I have to update on what the status of certain things are in many of the issues that I talk about. So I, um, I make no apologies for having to repeat some of the, the themes or the information. But you know what? That's been our lives. We've had the same, pardon the pun, drumbeat, you know, played against us for, for five centuries. So we go through this time and time again. Our... Uh, oppression is a repeated stance. It's a re- it's a repeated experience, and that's why today I'm going to talk about talk about a subject that I have talked about in the past. But I want to talk about the unique and pervasiveness, the uniqueness and pervasiveness of the racism that Native people specifically experience. Now, I'm not going to rate what racism and what level of racism is worse. But there's an acceptance to the racism that Native people experience. And therein lies part of the problem. And I'm going to talk about how some may fair, feel the, uh, the racism we experience is so benign. You know I've talked about the mascot issue, and I'm going to bring that up as, as an example. But there's so much more. In every aspect of American government, and by American I mean the United States, government, law enforcement, um, legislation, all of it, it is always skewed in such a way that it, it, it's always against us. And I say that because even when they, they claim to have passed or, or made a ruling that's favorable to Natives, it's always got some backside to it. It's got, it's got some downside to it. And, and I want to talk about some of that because 
if you don't understand what I am explaining in terms of the racism that I personally and and Native people, especially Native people from a Native community, you know, it, look, it, I could white pass. You know, I could cut my hair down and, and I could I could live my life as just John Kane, uh, you know, John Q. American. I could. But I'd have to deny who I am. I think there are plenty of Native people who go about their lives and perhaps they don't wear their nativeness on their shirt sleeve. I mean, I'm not decked out in turquoise and beadwork and that kind of stuff. I, you know, I, I have some and I wear it sometimes, but, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, putting my appearance forth in a performative way, but I'll talk about native issues almost all the time. I mean, I will always bring something back. You look, if, if there's a, an item in the news about any subject, there's a part of what I hear that I hear through the lens of Native oppression. So I can either liken myself to that situation, whether we're talking about military intervention, whether we're talking about uh, mass killings, whether we're talking about racial slurs, or whether we're talking about just simply embedded racism in the legal and judicial processes. So if I hear it about someplace else, I mean, even when we talk about some historical site, if we talk about some place that has some significance to, uh, to a distinct cultural group, not Native, a distinct cultural group of, of Americans, Black people, Jewish people, Hispanic people, whomever. I mean, we know that there's been these huge uh, influxes of, of Polish immigrants and of Irish immigrants and, you know, all, the, all these people, Chinese immigrants. All. So when we talk about these, you know, Chinatown, you know, or, you know, Little Italy in, in the city or, or, or whatever, I, I, I always have to go back to, to the fact that when we talk about these places, we're, and we, even as we talk about how these places came to be in, with these cultural distinctions, we still ignore whose land it was. I mean, we still, we still ignore that before the, the first white person signed over a title of the land that would become this area of a city or this area of a town or this area of the, of the countryside, it... Um, it was ours first. And most of that land is what is be, being called or referred to as unceded territory. Uh, I heard someone, I saw somebody posted a meme and it said, unceded territory is a polite way of saying it was stolen. <laughs> so, and, and that's uh, in all likelihood true. So I do want to talk about the unique racism. And, and I want to explain it. Look, you know, I, I, I read a book. Um, uh, right now, the the author of Frederick Joseph or Joseph Frederick, I'm sorry, I may have his name mixed up. About you know how you know, something about being the black friend, your your black friend, or, or something along those lines. And you know, and he so he's a black guy who is living or going to school at a school that's predominantly white. And most of the things that he's experiencing, especially if he goes over to a white kid's house, they don't even know they're saying something racist. Yeah, and and but once you accept, you put it out there, you explain it. Once you reveal and shine a light on something that they said, you can't unknow it. But you know, so you know whether it's the assumption that you know because you're black, you you you've got to be a great athlete, or that you have, you know, an affinity towards fried chicken and watermelon, or some stupid ass thing like that. I mean, whatever it is, <laughs> but you you will see that uh, you you will see that time and time again, and. 
so that's a little bit of what I want to talk about here. And of course, I can't talk about this kind of systemic and acceptable racism without talking about the mascot issue. I mean, and let's be clear. Only Native people are used in this manner. And I know people are quick to bring up like the fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Well, let me be clear here. I'm talking about a group of people that are not the ones that are referred to in the mascot, that are, that are appropriating or misappropriating an image or a theme that's not theirs for their school. The University of Notre Dame uh, is a, was an Irish Catholic university. So the fact that they wanted to call themselves the Fighting Irish um, and perhaps relied on some, you know, stereotypical tropes uh, in the process. Of course, they are, their mascot is not a, necessarily a, a, a standard Irishman. It's a leprechaun. Leprechauns don't exist. So even though they're, they're, they are the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, there's a foundation of, the, of that school that was Irish, Irish Catholic, and... So that's why I have it, you know, and anybody wants to bring up any other ridiculous name, like, or not, not a ridiculous, name, but a, but a ridiculous analogy. So you want to bring up the Vikings. Vikings don't exist anymore. Great miniseries on, uh, on some of the streaming services about Vikings. I, you know, I enjoy watching them too, <laughs> but, but I, uh, you know, I don't think that, uh, the, the, they are being uh, mocked by a football team calling themselves the Vikings because you know what happens? Everybody who's a fan of the Minnesota Vikings does not run around calling themselves the Vikings. You know what I'm saying? Where with native mascots, and, and it may not seem so apparent with professional teams, but when you're talking about a high school, you've got kids, non-native kids, who will run around, and, and let me take it back, not, not just non-native kids, but the alumni who were students at that school, sometimes 30, 40, 50 years ago that are running around saying, I was, I was an Indian since kindergarten. No, you weren't. You were white then, and you're still white. So this is what I'm talking about. You, you have this, this a, a very select group of people, Native people. And when I say select, we are a diverse population. You know, seven, 800 distinct Native peoples live across the United States and Canada, maybe closer to 1,000 or over 1,000. Uh, federally recognized, it's, I don't know, it's close to 500 or something like that. I, I lose track because the federal recognition thing is not, you know, my imperative on who, who is and isn't Native. But so you have these, you know, you have these groups. But in the overall scheme of things, we represent, especially when we're talking about Native people living in a Native community, a part of a Native community, immersed in Native culture, we're less than one-tenth of one percent. I know I've heard some people say, well, yeah, you're, you're over 1% of the U.S. population. Well, let's be clear. There's a whole lot of people in the United States who will run around calling themselves Native people when they may have some family lore or maybe they spit in a test tube and sent it off to 23andMe or Ancestry.com and found that they had trace amounts of DNA that aligned with, uh, with Native ancestry. And, and again, to be clear, those things are not, not accurate. They can never tell you which nation or what, you know, what tribe that you, uh, that you are a part of. All they can do is make a generalization, which is in large part assumption that you may have DNA that traces your, your roots to, uh, you know, to, to some sort of uh, native peoples. 
but it's not very accurate. And here's what those things can do. They can tell you if there's somebody else who's, who's um, put their information in their database that you're related to. They can, they can find relatives. In fact, I think they've used some of these um, DNA services and they've, they've been able to uh, track uh, um, evidence, criminal evidence, and they've been able to track down some, uh, you know, some uh, perpetrators, if you will, <laughs> or, you know, you know, guys who, who have committed these crimes. So they, by, and they did that by tracking down a relative. They, they didn't have the person in the database, but they may have had a relative in that database. And they said, well, do you, who are your relatives? And then they were able to track it down. So some of that 23andMe, you can find, you know, a distant relative, or you can find out that, you know, that you have half brothers or half sisters that were never told to you. And, you know, look, and look if you're adopted, you can find relatives, that, you know, siblings that you didn't think existed. So, and so I'm not condemning the practice, but the idea of trying to determine what your ethnicity is through DNA, ethnicity is not a DNA-based uh, uh, determination. Ethnicity and culture and, and your identity is based on who you are, not what, what blood runs through your veins or, or did when you were born. So when we're talking about the percentage of population, and, and I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again, in the... 2020 census, the data suggested that there was an 87% increase in those who, on their census forms, identified themselves, at least in part, as Native American. Now, an 87% increase is impossible. Somewhere between uh, 2010 and 2020, some of these people decided, you know what? I'm now, hereby, today, going to identify myself um, as Native American on a, on a form. I mean, they may have nothing to back it up. I mean, this is just self-identification. You don't need to prove anything when you fill out a census form. And where we see this get put on display beyond a census form is when we talk about the mascot issue, you'll have a lot of people say, well, I'm part, I'm part Indian, and I have no problem with it. Well, which part? I mean, it's, it, it's an absurd proposition. If you are not raised in a culture, if you have no connection to native peoples, just because your family law or because, or because you put it on a census form or because, you know, some percentage suggests so in your 23andMe uh, test tube or swab or whatever it was, that doesn't mean you're native. It means you may have native ancestry and your family lore may suggest you have native ancestry. But having native ancestry, I mean, you can't claim to be a citizen of Ireland just because you have an MC at the back, uh, you know, at the beginning of your last name. I mean, you can, you can suggest that your ancestors came from Ireland, you know, and that may only be a couple of generations back, but that doesn't make you an Irishman. It doesn't. You, you, and if you've lived in the American culture, and that is what identifies you, you, that you're an American, you're a U.S. citizen, proud American, all that stuff. You know, raised in the culture, you probably go to church on Sunday, you know, uh, generations of people who enlisted in the armed force, all, you know, all that stuff that, that people use to identify their Americanness. And now because it's fashionable to claim that you, that you have some trace amount or some you know, story in your family that says that 
your grandmother, your great grandmother was a Cherokee princess. Now you think you can speak on behalf of Native people? See, this doesn't happen anywhere else. You will rarely find somebody who, on a, from an appearance sake, looks completely white, but knows that they have some black ancestry. Most of the time, they'll cover that up. I mean, this is, this is a whole other thing, a piece of racism. But, but even if they don't, even if they own it, you will never find some white person with trace amounts of, uh, of African descendancy in, in, their, uh, in their DNA speak on behalf of black people. You would never have it, but we see it all the time. We experience it. That's, that's some of that unique racism. And the fact that, that we and we alone can be used in, these, in this mascot in this way, in this manner, um, is, is systemic racism. You know, we always hear people say, well, we, we only did it to honor you. No, you didn't. You did not develop or, or, or choose to call yourself the warriors, savages, redskins, raiders, Indians, Mohawks, fighting Sioux, whatever. You didn't choose those names to honor us. You thought that, well, that'd be a cool name and that will invoke some fear in our opponents because we all know how fierce and savage Native people are. So you you grab this stereotypical image that you have of who we are and then you promote that stereotypical image in every one of your, your in your logo, in your, your mascot, in your artwork, you, you're invariably going to display a native image as a violent, you know, virile, you know, never, they never use native women, by the way. <laughs> it's always the big fighting warrior, right? So, I mean, this, I mean, and, and the, so stereotypes are racist. The use of stereotypes and for a school to do it, that's, that's specifically racism. I mean, it is. And, and, it, and it can't coexist with anything like anti-discrimination policies that schools have because it's, it's highly discriminatory. It can't exist where schools have adopted and implemented a diversity, equity, inclusion uh, program. And how do I know that? I've asked every person that I know that does this for a living, that, that, that develops DEI programs for schools, industry, whatever. They say, no, you, you, it really can't coexist with, with a, a racial stereotype, nickname for the school, the students, and, and a mascot. Um, it's at odds with that very thing. And, and, and so that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the people who do these kinds of things. So there's, the mascot issue is a clear example of the unique racism and the pervasive racism that Native people experience. Now, I will say, I think there's up to eight states that have some sort of uh, a ban against their public schools utilizing uh, Native mascots. Yeah, eight out of 50. I mean, it's... Uh, and, and I'm not saying that in these schools or in the states that don't have a ban, there aren't schools that have moved, uh, moved away from this. By and large, anybody who, who is an administrator of a school who is really passionate about education or, or child development or psych, psychology, they all know this is bad. The only people who will cling to it are those that alumni not even all students that, that, uh, that live with this and, and are being educated in this way 
appreciate it. No, they aren't. I mean, there's some students, I mean, and many, in fact, the schools that had the easiest transition from using native mascots are the ones where that fight was led by, by students, a student-led opposition to the, uh, to the mascot. That's, that's always been the smoothest. Anytime you had somebody like me, an old alumni, or, or somebody who represents um, a native voice, not the native voice, but a native voice, that always gets met with all kinds of hostility. All kinds of hostility. But I think people are less prone to, to be angry and uh, vindictive um, against uh, a student, a kid. I'm not saying they don't experience some of it. They certainly do. But, uh, you know, and we've seen this play out in school newspapers where, you know, schools like Neshaminy High School um, took punitive actions against, um, against their newspaper because they, they refused to print the, the redskin word anymore in their newspaper. I mean, it's, you, can't make, you can't make this stuff up. But I, I, but I wanted to, I mean, that's an easy one to, to, to demonstrate. There, but there are many others, and I'm, and I'm going to talk about some of them. There's a di dismissiveness. You know, and, and, I, and, you know, frankly, I, I, saw it, I, I saw it happen even as the Senecas were engaged with, with some of the New York State politicians over their, their gaming compact and the notion of revenue sharing. And I've mentioned this one before, too. But when my friend who was on Seneca Council went to Albany to raise the prospect of the tensions that are, were going to exist in negotiating a new gaming compact with the state of New York. And they, so he went, to, he went to Albany to, with, a, with a, uh, a group of counselors to meet with legislators and try to prep them and, and try to give their side of the story. But before he could even get the, barely get the words out of his mouth, and, and he talked about racism, he was stopped dead in his tracks by a prominent black politician who flat out said, how dare you? How dare you bring up racism after a white boy goes in and shoots all those people in that top friendly market in, uh, in Buffalo? Well, that doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist beyond, you know, somebody goes in and commits a mass murder. But so that is the, probably the most outrageous dismiss, dis or disrespect of a native person who is attempting to explain the very things that I'm talking about right now. That there is a systemic racism that exists in governance, in legislation, and in, uh, in the legal system. And he, he got dismissed. I mean, she, she literally threw them, out of their, uh, threw them out of her office. And then when I talked about it on my program here, and she caught wind of it, she, had, uh, she reached the, the, the Senate Nation's lobbyists and said, said, I demand an apology from the Seneca Nation for what John Kane said. I'm not even Seneca. I just live here. Still, nobody threw me off. <laughs> I, di I didn't get uh, suspended from living here <laughs> or disqualified from living here because of something I said on the air. But, uh, um, but, but so there's an example. But there's other examples. And, and I've talked about this, and, and, I'm, and I still have yet, and I plan to have my good friend Peter DeRico, um, law professor at the uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, who wrote a good book. Uh, I mean, a very good book. I don't have a copy of it right here. I loaned it out to somebody else to read it. Um, and, and it's called Federal Anti-Indian Law. And he does a great job uh, laying out not only um, where some of this racism specifically gets codified into U.S. law, but how it does and the impacts of it. You know, he talks about the doctrine of Christian discovery coming in. And there's three cases by Justice John Marshall 
where um, where he codifies the doctrine of Christian discovery and then tweaks it a little bit and uh, and talks about Congress having plenary powers. It's almost like he he he, he individually granted that to them. <laughs> and then he also talks about this um, the trust responsibility or the ward custodian analogy that that. Native people are simply wards of the state. And this wasn't, he didn't rule that. He just made that analogy in his legal dicta, and that becomes the policy. We, now we hear every single time we talk about Native people and the, and the federal government, they talk about the trust responsibility. The problem is, there is a standard set of laws that govern uh, and that, that stand as regulations in what we call trust law. So if you're the guardian of somebody, if you are somebody's trustee, the laws are pretty clear about what your responsibility is and whose benefit has to take a priority, has to play a priority in that relationship. But the United States in their so-called trust responsibility for Native people, no, we're not the priority, national interest is. And even recent Supreme Court justices have, have made that clear. Well, we're not talking about real trust law here. And we're talking about the trust responsibility of Native people. So you can throw out your law. You can, you can discard your law and say, we have, a di we have something different. We're using words that are similar. And we, use, we use words like sovereignty, but we throw the word tribal in front of it, which means not. I mean, th this is the, the, the game that gets played with Native people. And it's, look, and I know it's difficult. Here's what's difficult. I mean, it doesn't need to be, but here's what's difficult. We aren't your standard American. We aren't your standard U.S. citizen. I know you tried to pass laws to make us citizens, but it didn't necessarily do it. I mean, there are plenty of Native people who will um, claim to be U.S. citizens based on a law that passed that declared us citizens, even though we didn't do anything to, you know, to lobby for that. We didn't do, we, we did nothing. There's no process or procedure where a Native child born with his sovereignty intact, goes and says, well, okay, now I'm giving that to the federal government. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit myself, or my parents, which wouldn't even be legal, but, or my parents are going to. I know everybody thinks differently about this because you know, they, they talk about anchor babies and all kinds of stuff about you know, once you're born in the United States, you're, you're, you know, you're thereby a citizen. Um, but it doesn't necessarily strip who, you, who your family is. I, I know people say, well, everybody wants to be a U.S. citizen. No, I don't. I don't. I, I'm perfectly content to be Gunyagahaga, what, what you know as Mohawk. I'm, I'm fine being Ungwe, what you know as Native. I don't need to be a U.S. citizen. You know, and, and part of the reason I don't need to be is because, frankly, the way your laws are constructed, you aren't supposed to be able to discriminate against this, yeah, discriminate against me because I'm not a U.S. citizen. You know, the way the laws are written in the United States, it's supposed to be that everybody has equal protection, right? The problem is there's so much racism embedded in U.S. custom policy and law that that's simply not true. And we've seen it with all kinds of groups. But today, in the, in, you know, in the aftermath of civil rights and, you know, and these cries for social justice, I'm not suggesting that things are, are that much better, but it's hard to make a legal case against a black person who is simply just demanding his civil rights. But 
because of our distinction and because we aren't necessarily demanding rights under the U.S. Constitution, there's a whole other set of standards and laws come into play. And laws that are passed specifically to take something away from us. Gaming, for instance. I, I, you know, I mentioned it before, but when the Supreme Court in 1987 said that California could not shut down a native gaming operation in its state because there was no underlying federal statute that, that gave them, them authority or the federal government authority. There, were, there was nothing in the, on the books that said what the, what the native people were doing was illegal. So the Supreme Court didn't say what the Cabazon band of Mission Indians, um, they didn't give them permission to do gaming, but they acknowledged that there's nothing in the U.S. law that prohibits it. I would argue there, there could be nothing in U.S. law because if you're going to understand, recognize the distinction of a native group, then how does the United States have this authority to, to just do this stuff, to, uh, to, to deem something illegal? I'll tell you how. It goes back to one of those uh, Justice Marshall rulings and the, and the light language used. This idea that Congress has been afforded or awarded or whatever, this unlimited, really unlimited authority to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. That's what they say, right? Basically, they, they, they have unlimited authority. It, they have authoritarian rule over the affairs of Native people. Not bound by the Constitution, not bound by other laws. Forget trust law. Forget property law. For, forget any, any of that stuff. Forget civil rights. Congress, because of language in Supreme Court rulings, and then piling more stuff upon it. You know, the other thing that, <laughs> that Justice John Marshall once said, he said, um, and he's, he talks about uh, the extravagant pretension of converting this notion of discovery of an inhabited place, so a discovery of a people and a place, of converting that into conquest, Even in spite of the absurdity of that, he says, if you can do it in the beginning and then sustain that argument or that position long enough, it becomes law and it can't be questioned. Of course, everything can be questioned, but that's what the same judge said. He said, we're going to pretend that because white folks, Spanish or Spain, uh, the, the French, the British, and then and then and the Americans—they bought all this property right, these property rights through this doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, the Louisiana Purchase was was considered Spanish territory. They sold it to the French, and the French sold it to the Americans. All these borders that got moved between you know French colonies and uh, Spanish colonies and uh, and the American and the U.S. colonies—we weren't in the in those in those land deals. Why? Because we didn't matter. See, they could do these things in spite of the laws and the respect they even had for each other, even as they were war fighting with each other. Even in the wars between these European powers and, and the offspring of those European powers like the United States. They have a standard set of laws, but even those laws don't apply to us. That's racism. I mean, it's just racism. You know, I've talked, you know, also about this, um, this idea of a native people trying to develop an economy. And, and, I've, and I've explained it to people. 
We're different. Our communities are different than yours. And, and we are a different people. I, and I don't mean genetically necessarily. I don't, I don't mean that we are superior and, or, or inferior, but we come from a different place. We come from, from a different time. We've been here forever. You haven't. We come from a culture that developed with our relationship to the land and the relationship to, to each other. We didn't subjugate women the way other cultures did. And yet, so the idea of patriarchy, I mean, I, I oftentimes got to correct people because they say, well, well, the Haudenosaunee were a matriarchal society. No, we weren't. Our clan identity and part of our identity came from our mother, which made it matrilineal, but not matriarchal. The idea of being matriarchal would have been just as bizarre as being patriarchal. I mean, that, it, we wouldn't, I mean, we don't know how uh, two human beings, one could be superior over just by, because of gender. That, I mean, that's an absurd proposition to us. But that's what came. And our people even got affected by it, infected by it. So we're, I mean, Native territories still battle patriarchy to this day. Why? Because we learned it from you. And the egos of any human being, once they get elevated above other people, even if they know that's not quite right, when they know there's perks to come to it. So when somebody says, well, we don't need to talk to your women, we just need to talk to your men. All of a sudden, the men start feeling more empowered, right? When the Seneca Nation got rid of the, the chief system, which and there should have never been a chief system, should have been a clan system, but when they got rid of all that and they adopted a constitution with elections, women couldn't vote. Well, how could a society where, that was built on this notion of equality and shared responsibility devolve so quickly to the point where women couldn't vote in a, in a Seneca election? I mean, we don't have uh, elections in, uh, traditionally, we, you know, we would work to, towards consensus in clans and then in the communities and in the nation and then confederacy. That's how we did things. And that consensus was, uh, it wasn't really a vote. It wasn't where you, you cast a ballot. It, it's that you, you worked it out amongst a group of people. Yeah, it's a bit of a slow process, but you know what? It worked. It worked for thousands of years. Once patriarchy became the model and our men started, you know, feeling like, like they were the rulers. I mean, one of the translations of the Guyanard Ogoa, some people call it the Great Law of Peace, doesn't really translate to that, but some people call it that. One of the, the, the English translations referred to the, the chiefs as the Confederacy Lords. I mean, you can't get much more patriarchy than that, right? So this notion that, that we could be degraded this quickly and, and done through a variety of things, obviously the threat of violence, the threat of removal of our, uh, from our land. And, and again, there's no other people, and there's no other place, I don't, I don't believe. I mean, think about other places where colonization took place. Africa, there's still black people that, uh, that live there. <laughs> they didn't get removed. I mean, a fair number did get subjected and, and dragged out of, off the continent into slavery in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere and, and into Europe. Don't get me wrong. But there wasn't a, an, a, an eradication of the population, not in India, Pakistan, China, Australia. I mean, maybe Australia a little bit. But only in the United States was there policy 
so driven towards the eradication of our population that between 95 and 99% of our population was, was, was destroyed, killed, murdered, died, eliminated. And then the effort towards assimilation through any number of programs, including residential schools, which were violent, immoral, unethical, and clearly anybody who believes this, the so-called myth about separation of church and state in the United States, there was no separation of church and state when it came to residential schools. They were federally funded and church run, sometimes state uh, funded and church run. I mean, that's, that's uh, an unholy or holy matrimony, if that's however you want to view it, I guess. And they covered each other. They still covered each other. Because one thing, here's one thing I will guarantee, and I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. When we look at the clergy sex abuse that has rocked the Catholic Church and, and other denominations as well, but primarily the Catholic Church, and we see where the entire Catholic Church in a, in a given area is filing bankruptcy to protect them from the huge losses that'll come from lawsuits, and we see what some of these altar boys in their adult life now have managed to sue for, I mean tens of millions of dollars, suing the Catholic Church for tens of millions of dollars. I guarantee that when we get through this U.S. reckoning of residential schools and the abuse from murder to sex abuse to physical abuse to mental abuse to, you know, and, and to a whole lot of just missing children, oftentimes buried in unmarked graves. If we ever get an account of that, a full account of that, I guarantee there will never be payments made from the churches or the federal government that come close to what, what a little white boy abused by a priest gets. I guarantee it. And you know what that is? Racism. It's just racism. And there's, and there's no way to get around it. My biggest fear about going forward with, uh, with trying to hold the United States accountable for, uh, for the atrocity of residential schools, the genocide of residential schools, is we're going to, again, it's kinda, they're going to do like they do with cops. Oh, no, the police department's fine. It's just a couple of bad apples that are behaving badly. That's what they're going to try to say about these residential schools. Oh, no, the Churchill isn't really couple. The Pope travels to Canada for an apology tour and he apologizes not for the role of the church and Rome, doctrine of discovery, all that, and not for the, the role that the Catholic church played in these murders, but for what the individual churches did or what people in those individual churches did. So the whole idea, and this is, again, my fear is they're going to try to reduce this atrocity of residential schools to a few bad apples committing child abuse. Oh, it's child abuse. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's genocide. It's not just the mistreatment of children. It was the murder of children. It was the, it was the elimination of our population. In some of these schools, the survival rate was less than 50%. Less than 50% survival rate of making it through the school. You know, and before residential schools were a national policy in the U.S. and Canada, in the earlier 1800s, earlier, before the, 
you know, the spread of these hundreds and hundreds of residential schools, the United States passed a law through Congress called the, the Civilization Act, where they were um, funding some of the church mission schools that were already in place. They, were, they said, well, we're going to help those churches do that stuff. And let me think, let me tell you this. One of, the, one of the other gripes that I had with the Catholic Church was when they uh, turned a, a guy by the name of Huna Parasera into a, a Catholic saint, a saint, a Christian saint. This guy was a, was a child molester. He was, you know, a child abuser. I talk about kids not being able to, you know, having, in some of these schools, there being less than a 50% survival rate of the school. Under his guidance, under his leadership, his mission schools, it, it, was, it was closer to 80%. The death rate of a child in his care had, had, had went well over 50%, closer to 80%. But you know what? It was okay because he baptized them. He could check off the box and say, there, I saved that soul. doesn't matter if the kid died. It's going to heaven. And that was the attitude. That is literally what Hunapera wrote, right? About the souls he saved, not the lives he saved, the souls. Again, this, this, this crazy, you can't make this stuff up. When people talk about the end of slavery, slavery didn't end for Native people in, in the, on the West Coast too well after slavery was abolished elsewhere. And California was admitted as a free state, as a non-slave state, into the Union. And yet it had Native slaves. And, you know, look, they, they may have framed it differently. They owned human beings, and those human beings were native. That's, I mean, that's the racism, right? So even, you know, we always hear this, um, this great quote from Martin Luther King. He talks about the, the arc of the moral universe leaning towards justice. Well, the original quote, which is um, uh, a guy, from a guy named Parker, he suggested that it took man's will to divine that arc of the moral universe towards justice. And he, and he said, look, I can't see where it goes. It, the, that arc is too long. My eyes can't see that far. But from what I can see, I believe we can divine that arc towards justice. That's what he said. But it takes conscience. It takes acknowledgement. And so when I talk about the unique racism that Native people experience, I have to be clear. If you can't see it, it's not going to rack your conscience. I mean, the arguments that I have with people over mascots, native mascots, is absurd. I mean, it doesn't matter how many analogies I make to blackface versus redface, you know, or you, you know, that you couldn't do this with any other people but native people. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how many analogies I create. It doesn't matter how many professional services associated with psychology and child development come out and say it. Doesn't matter how many nations say we oppose this. I mean, we get called weak and overly sensitive for taking offense to this. Then why are you using us for, for why are you using us for a mascot if you think we're weak and sensitive? Well, I hate to say it, but part of their argument is, well, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the people that you're you're merely descendants of. Like, we aren't those people. But they'll claim to be those people. I mean, there's an absurd proposition when we talk about residential schools. 
that Native kids were having the identity beaten out of them. I mean, the, the policy was kill the Indian, save the man. Canada, they tweaked that. They said, kill the in, Indian in the child or in the man. So what they really meant was destroy their identity as Native people. That's, you know, and that, it, this isn't a leap to say that. That's exactly what they meant. Destroy the Native identity of these children, and then they can be okay. They can find some comfortable place in the bottom rungs of American society and live as U.S. citizens, Canadian citizens, Americans. They can, they can now learn to be ashamed of that Native identity and reject it out of hand. That's what they did. That's what, that's what they tried to do. And they were successful in a, in a large way. I mean, the number of Native people who are Christians today owe most of that to residential schools. And I don't care how people feel about Christianity or, or any of the, you know, the major religions of the world. If you were enslaved and murdered and abused the way black people and Native people were, in the name of that Bible that they shoved in your face and tried to indoctrinate you to, that indoctrination was successful. I mean, the doctrine of Christian discovery was a, really came down to the Catholic Church, which at the time was the only church. There was no Anglican church. There was no Protestants. There were no, none of these other divisions of, uh, of churches when we're talking about you know, the, the, um, the, the origins of the doctrine of discovery. No, there was one church, and it was based in Rome at the Vatican. Still it is, but, it's the, but, that, but it was the only church, the Christian church. And this doctrine was the doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, it could not have been more clear what it was advocating. And not just advocating and supporting, it was encouraging. It was pushing nations into spreading Christendom by enslaving people, taking their land, taking their resources. And by the way, send a little bit of that, uh, that gold and silver to, to Rome. The Catholic Church is sitting on billions, probably trillions of dollars worth of Native assets. They even argued at one point that they were holding that, you know, that, that they were you know, setting aside 10% for Native people at some point. I, I don't know what that means. I, you know, I, I don't get a check from the Catholic Church anywhere. But, I mean, this is, again, this, this absurdity, and, and there's no other way to, uh, to describe it other than racism. Look, we don't have a whole lot of people today walking into a Native community and committing mass murder against us, but we did. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened in Native territories. I mean, you literally had, I mean, you got this cute little notion of Little House on the Prairie, the Ingles of the Little House of the Prairie. Yeah, that's fine. No, they were invading our lands, and they had the military backing them up to kill us. So the, the, the history is not represented accurately. So that's part of the racism. We're going to redefine it. I mean, the, just the, the mere idea that these predominantly white schools will twist history so much to say, oh, no, we're going to call ourselves the Indians. Well, considering what you did, what your ancestors did to my ancestors, in what world does that even make sense? Oh, because of the, the brave fighting seals. Our brave fighting seals, we lost our land to you somehow. And it wasn't, through, it wasn't all through um, 
conquest. I, I hate that. Again, let me go back to you know Justice Marshall. No, we're just laying our eyes on you. In our book, says we conquered you. Just discovering you means we conquered you. And so, of course, that doesn't hold up. So what do you do? You commit fraud. You lie. You st you steal. You cheat. You say a lease is like a sale. You make it impossible for us to live in a certain place. You go and you kill 90%, 99% of all the buffalo so we starve. You burn our crops. You rape our women. So you make it impossible for us to, to live the lives that we live for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Then you make up stories about, oh, well, we only migrated across the land bridge from Siberia. And, you know, so, you know, we don't really claim the land. We just happen to be there a little bit sooner. But since we never officially claimed the land as ours, we don't have title to land. I'm going to tell you, Native people held a philosophy that the land owned us. And I don't mean just us as human beings, all, all living things. I mean, for a man to claim to own the land would be as crazy to suggest that a deer or a rabbit or a tree owns it. In fact, I think a tree could make a solid, a more solid claim than, than any four-legged, two-legged, or, you know, slithering animal could. Because they literally are a part of the earth. They don't just come from the earth and then get buried in the earth. But a certain group of white men with the Catholic Church asserting that you can take that land. So a white person says, well, who owns this land? Well, the, 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 we, we live here, the, the, the land kind of owns us. Okay, we own it now. You don't, you don't hold title to this land? Well, where, where do you hold title to this land? I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, it's, it's, I, I can't help but pick on her. I don't care that she's dead. But I can't help but pick on her. Here, Jewish people make this claim for Israel, against people who live, are living there, and they claim because, the, because they claim they once lived there that it's theirs, and they cite some biblical or um, Torah passage or something like that, that this was their land promised to them by God himself. And yet she will cite the doctrine of Christian discovery that would displace us from our land. So the very claim that the that, that Jews will make to Israel Again, we're going to dismiss that when it comes to Native people. Native people, no, you can't make the same claim. You, you, don't, you don't have a, you know, a biblical or, or a holy document like Christians and Muslims and Jews do. I mean, it, it is, like I said, it is about as absurd and racist as could be. So, I mean, there are other examples, but I, I just felt like I had to, you know, reaffirm to those of you who listen to the show, that Native people experience racism on a daily basis. And, and I'm not saying we're the only people. And I'm not even saying that the racism that we experience is worse than what other people experience. I mean, look, I, I know between you know, slavery and lynching and, you know, and, and so much of the, the racism that Black people experience, I'm not trying to compete with them for, well, whose racism was worse? But what I will say is we can acknowledge today that that behavior was racist, even though some of it still continues. I mean, when, you, when some 18-year-old kid walks into a 
a, a grocery store and just mows down people with, with an assault rifle. We know the sentiment still exists. But you know what? That's considered a crime. The stuff that is still happening to Native people is not illegal. Slavery was legal, but then it wasn't. Lynching was never legal, but it was, a, but it, but it was never prosecuted. When hundreds of black people in Tulsa get murdered, nobody gets prosecuted. I think it's important that people understand that what we are fighting for as Native people, what I am fighting for, is not equality under the U.S. Constitution. I'm fighting for acknowledgement and respect of our distinction, our autonomy. We are not you. We are a distinct people. And distinct peoples all over the continent, both continents, North and South America, Central America, there are Native people whose culture and very existence has millennia of connection to the land. Not, you know, coming in the 40s or the 50s, or more of the 1700s for that matter. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.